welcome to the next episode of Let's Talk PND. My name is Talia and each episode I aim to bring you heartfelt stories from parents about their journey with postnatal anxiety and depression. If you have a story you'd like to share, get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. So let's get stuck into this week's episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of Let's Talk PND. And today I'm joined by Hannah, uh, mum to two beautiful children, Ray and Toby. Um, Ray, who is four years of age, and Toby, who is 10 months. So she lives in rural Melbourne and is a professional witch, uh, tarot reader, and astrologist. Um, she's going to take us through her two births. Um, one in the public system and one home birth that was um, a transfer to hospital just at the very end um, and her mental health experiences um, post both those um, experiences. So thanks, Hannah, for coming on and having a chat with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, great. Um, do you want to start um, telling us a little bit about yourself and your family and um, your little beautiful little kids? Sure. So we are a defence family, a military family. My husband's in the Air Force. So we currently live in regional Victoria, but we have also previously last year, we were living in Western Australia, unfortunately moved back into Victoria just as the COVID lockdown got worse here. <laughs> so that was not fun. Uh, and But we are originally from Victoria as well. So a lot of our family is here and we are due to move to Queensland in about three months time. So we move a lot. <laughs> Yeah, excited. Um, and I've got, as, as you said, I've got my two little babies, uh, Aurelia, which we call her Ray for short, and Toby, and they are, you know, the loves of my life along with my husband. And that's pretty much us in a nutshell. Mm, lovely. And um, so, do you want to talk us through um, Ray's birth? So, um, it was a. You were saying it was sort of like a standard hospital birth. Um, and so, take us through through that correct so with her I was not educated in the way that I am now especially since I joined home birth free birth sort of communities and learned a lot so back then I didn't really know what I was doing and I was the first out of every one of my friends to have had a baby so it was all totally new my mum only had her experiences, which was she told me she was her pelvis was too small to birth children, and so she had to have emergency C-sections, which saved both our lives. And that was the story I grew up with. And I remember telling her I was pregnant, and she went, okay, well, you'll have to have a C-section. And I was like, no, absolutely not. And she said, well, you have to go private so that you can have your C-section. I said, well, no, I'm going public. So already it was sort of a pushback on that idea did not want to have a c-section uh, nothing against people who choose to have a c-section but for me I knew it wasn't what I wanted and what I needed so I pushed back against that and went public and just sort of went through the system as is which was in itself pretty much you're a number in the system I started with uh, one of the bigger hospitals I don't know if I can say per hospital names if I'm going to talk badly about them but one of the bigger hospitals in Melbourne that's renowned for its birth care and I remember turning up to my appointments and there would be women sitting on the floor heavily pregnant because there weren't enough chairs I would wait four to six hours for an appointment and then when you go in the doctor looks down and goes all right so you're high risk uh, why are you high risk again and I'm like, what do you mean I'm high risk? I'm not high risk. I'm, you know, I was 25. I was 
perfectly healthy. I was like, why am I high risk? What, what if, what's on your form? He said, I don't know. We've got high risk here. So I guess I'll take you through that. It was a you know, five minute appointment and see you later. And every time I went back, they kept saying, oh, you're high risk, you're high risk. I'm like, why? What is causing this? They made me do the gestational diabetes test twice because I was high risk and I just didn't know any better. So I went through it. And then we luckily moved to the country and I got put into a a smaller hospital uh, environment where it was like local midwives. And that was much better. They sort of greeted me by name. Hey, Hannah, you must be new. We haven't seen you here before. I was like, whoa, this is different. (laughs) But it was still very typical. You go in, it's, you know, the waiting time might have been 20 minutes, but the appointment time was still, you know, 10 minutes. Check your blood pressure. How are you feeling? That's normal. That's normal. See you later. And unfortunately, when I told them, and I had been telling everyone along the way since about nine weeks onwards, my back really hurts. My lower back really hurts. I've had slip discs before. Could this be doing that? And I'd had a physio say, no, it's impossible for pregnancy to slip your disc. That's a lie uh, because that happened in my sleep in that pregnancy. And I kept saying, you know, my back is really sore. I can't walk. It hurts. And finally at 28 weeks when I'd gotten to this country hospital, they said, you know, oh, that doesn't sound right. That actually sounds like uh, po- like pelvic girdle pain. So I saw their maternity physio and, and she put me on bed rest at 28 weeks. So. Yeah. It was, she's like, if you didn't see me this week, you would be on crutches or in a wheelchair. That's how bad you are right now. We can we can only manage pain. We can't fix this at all. Uh, so that was pretty hard uh, being on limited movement. I had to stop working and I was planning on working my full-time job up to 36 weeks. Um, I didn't know any better. So I'd been wearing high heels. I'd been doing all the things that you shouldn't <laughs> do. Uh, I'd been doing yoga and Pilates, which were really bad for pelvic girdle pain and just I had no idea. So it started off like that, being on bed rest from 28 weeks, which is tough, even tougher that I had zero mum friends. So all my friends worked full time. So literally total isolation. We lived out in the country and, you know, I had my parents, but they also worked full time and we lived in a very old house on a quarter acre property and it was just tough. I couldn't clean. I couldn't do anything but lie there and watch TV, which was not fun. And I was uncomfortable and in pain. So get up to about 40 weeks and I was desperate to get this baby out of me so I wouldn't be in pain anymore. And I actually started getting contractions and I started timing them and they weren't really getting closer or then they'd get to, you know, five minutes apart and then go back to 10 minutes. And I was like, oh, I don't know, I'll call the hospital. So that went on for six days. And so I'm like, I didn't know you could be in labor for six days. And every time I called the hospital, no, 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 that's not real labor. That's false labor, uh, which I felt was really dismissive and invalidating what I was actually feeling, which was real contractions. And I know from having two babies now, they were real contractions. They just weren't progressing me as fast as a hospital system would have liked. And so every time I went in to check, they'd be, oh, you're only three centimeters. The next day, oh, you're only this. Like, it's just not going too fast. We can bring you in and in- induce you. And I kept pushing back. And then on day six, I went, induce me. Like I, I can't sleep through them. I'm not getting sleep. Or I'm done. So I went in, got induced and the actual induction process was pretty good. Uh, I had to be hooked up to, you know, the IV drip and monitored the entire time. So my movement was limited. I couldn't really stand up or move around, but I wanted to give birth on all fours anyway. And I did that. So, and they were pretty hands off, which was good, but I really wanted to go in the shower. Wasn't allowed. Uh, I was dreaming of a water birth, wasn't allowed. So all of that was a bit hard. And having a midwife change shift in between was really shook me up a bit. Um, but we had we had my daughter, I think I had seven hours of active labor when I was in the hospital. And I tore, I had a second degree tear, which was then not really stitched up very well. There was a bit of flap of skin that was left there and I still have that. 
And so that was frustrating, but we had our baby and didn't need any interventions, you know, outside of being induced, but there was no forceps, there was no C-section, there was no talk of that whatsoever. Uh, There were a few things along the way that now I look back as pretty intense, like waters being ruptured uh, for me and just being told this is just what we do, this is how we induce you. And that was not comfortable. Uh, there was a lot of water. And I'd been told the big baby thing for a while as well. You know, and I was, I carry very big. And so then we get to about eight centimetres. They call the doctor in to, to check where I'm at. And he said that the waters hadn't been ruptured properly and they had to do it again at eight centimetres. So in they go with the crochet hook. Uh, again, very uncomfortable, but apparently they'd only gone through some of the layers. I don't even know what they were saying, but more water did come out. Mm-hmm. And it didn't, it sort of progressed from then. But of course, once I wanted to start pushing, they held me off until the doctor could come and check. Like, you know, don't listen to your body, just wait until they come and check. So there were a few things there that didn't feel right for me, which is why I think I went for a home birth the second time. So I'm sure we'll get into the mental health things, but that was the birth of Ray. Uh, Birth for Toby was totally different. Um, I planned a home birth. I had some lovely midwives that saw me the entire way through. So I didn't have to go to the doctors. I never had to leave my house. Even during COVID, they would come to my house. The appointments were like two hours long and it wasn't doing much. It was chatting about what I wanted for birth. It was chatting about me. She got to know Aurelia, like they were chatting and my daughter would go and pick a flower for her every day. And she kept them in her bag. She said, look, I have your flower from last time. Like they, they had developed a relationship. I developed a relationship with them. It was really, really good. That experience, that continuity of care, phenomenal. And I think it really played a massive part in my mental health with birth number two. Yeah. Uh, the actual, actual birth itself was, Pretty intense labor. Again, I had three weeks of prodromal labor. So I, that's just what my body seems to do to get baby into position and get them ready. Uh, I, they, I went to 42 weeks. I gave birth exactly at 42 weeks and to have my midwives, my, my private home birth midwives, I had to go and get monitoring after 41 weeks, which I wasn't happy about, but I wanted to keep them on board and they have to do what they have to do. So I went in and of course, we're going to induce you. And I said, no, you're not. And they said, well, we'll book you in. And I said, no. And they said, well, you're going to harm your baby. And I said, well, no, I'm not. (laughs) I've read the studies that you're trying to cite at me. It's not a, you know, you're doubling your risk of a stillbirth. And I said, no, I mean, yes, but that's not the actual risk, is it? It's 0.4% to 0.0 whatever. It's tiny. It's minuscule. No, don't induce me. So they booked me in. And I went, I won't turn up. And I left and thankfully went into to labor at 42 weeks on the dot. But that whole pregnancy, I was expecting to have pelvic girdle pain. I went and got myself, you know, the, the belt that I needed. I went and did all the proper things. I made sure my legs were closed at all times. I got in and out of the car the right way. I didn't have any pain. I felt fantastic. I actually had a great pregnancy. So I think not being in high heels, not being in a high stress job, uh, really helped. I actually rested. Like I properly rested with this pregnancy. I really enjoyed it. I tried to enjoy it. Uh, At one point I found it really hard to walk and that was due to energy. And we found out later my iron was pretty low. So I did get a transfusion and that changed the whole pregnancy and made it a million times better. So I really needed that. And then, yeah, 42 weeks, I was like, I could, I could actually go a little longer. (laughs) Like it's not, I don't feel that desperation to get the baby out like I did with Mm -hmm. my birth. But Anyway, went into labor um, after a false call from my midwife one day, two days later, actual labor. They came (laughs) out. That was great. Uh, The labor itself was was fine up to a certain point. And I'd had my mum there to take care of my daughter. And I said, look, just take her out of the house whilst I'm doing it. I kind of just don't want her in the house. Uh, Some people do. That's fine for me. I just, I didn't really want that. And she took her out for about three hours and then brought her back. 
And I said, look, can you, can you get her out? And that was never listened to. And I think that's where it started to go a bit off the rails because I knew she was there. So I was holding back. I didn't want to scare her. She's very, very sensitive. And it started to ramp up in pain and I started to not be able to really handle it. And I got in the water, but I was like roaring. You don't see that on the birth videos in the home birth groups. They're all beautiful, calm, like, oh, mm-hmm. those sorts of noises. No, this was like guttural screams. I thought it sounded like I was getting murdered and I really felt for my neighbours. <laughs> thought, oh, my God, they're going to they're gonna call the cops. Um, but it was, it was pretty intense. And so my husband as well, seeing the difference from one birth where I was pretty much silent the entire birth and then to this birth. And he's like, I thought this was meant to be calmer. I thought this was meant to be better. (laughs) And yeah, we ended up finding out that the heart rate wasn't quite doing what it should in between contractions. I tried a few position changes. Um, then I consented to a, a, uh, examination, which I hadn't, I'd said, no, I don't want to be checked at all the whole way. And she said, look, you're, you're 10 centimeters. Cause I was pushy, but it would, it just didn't feel right. So she checked and said, you're 10 centimeters, but there's a cervical lip there and try a few position changes. So we tried holding it open, which was really painful. I don't yeah. recommend that. Uh, we tried the, I think it's called the Walchers technique. So uh, my husband, uh, my husband laughs now because I was butt naked lying on my back on the dining table with my legs hanging off, trying to let the baby sort of drop past that lip. And mm-hmm. he's standing there going, dinner's never going to be the same again. <laughs> oh, so it was, um, it was pretty intense. And then because the baby's heart rate had, wasn't coming up in between, you know, after each contraction, they said, look, the cord might be around the neck. You can choose if you want to, to call the ambulance to have here in case of resuscitation. This is the stuff we have here, but that's up to you. And I didn't feel pressured at all, but I said, look, I'd rather have them here than not uh, because, you know, if I need them and don't have them, that's kind of worse. So yeah, call them. So my husband's then been told, you know, the cord might be around the neck, go and call the ambulance. And he didn't know that that's not a big deal. And I knew that I'd done my research and I was like, oh yeah, it might be like, might need a bit of resuscitation, but like, it's not the end of the world. Babies are born with cords around the neck all the time. He didn't know that. So he just thought, oh my God, we're having a stillbirth. Like, yeah. What? So poor thing, his perspective is a little different. And, you know, then he's calling the ambulance saying, oh, my wife's in labor. Can you please come? So he's, he's freaking out a bit more. Um, my mum's there starting to play, pray in tongues over me, which <laughs> I was raised Christian. It's not my path anymore. As you said earlier, I'm a professional witch, tarot reader, and astrologer. I'm very removed from that. So I think being prayed in tongues during a contraction was made me aggravated and angry, like get out of my space, but I couldn't verbalize that, right? And then we've got ambulance came in and they actually mentioned the word painkiller. And I went, yes, yes, actually, please give me something. So they gave me a green stick. And that was incredible. And I was like, I can do this. Let's try all the positions. So we did. We really, really gave it a good go. All fours on the bed with my midwife, like shaking my butt cheeks because I kept tensing up. And, you know, she's, we did everything. And I was just getting to the end of my tether and pain wise. And then they said, we can't give you any more medication unless you go to hospital. I said, well, take me, cut the baby out. I don't care. Take me. And uh, I almost had him in the ambulance. We live, I'm not kidding. We live two minutes from the hospital driving normally in our car. So in the ambulance, we were there even faster. They went from the stretcher to the bed and out he popped basically. So he was born on call and it was very fast. Like whilst the actual labor was again, about seven hours of active labor, I mean, we weren't checking dilation, so that's just presumed. 
I think the actual pushing stage was so much faster because my daughter, I pushed for about three hours and it was exhausting. This was like, I couldn't stop it. (laughs) You know, I was like, I'm not ready. I want the pain medication. Where's the pain medication? They said, you don't have time for that. So he's the baby's coming out. So he popped out on call, which was cool, but they had to um, pop it before I could actually see that because the cord was around his neck. So they did that. And I saw the, the, I don't know what you call it, the bit of the sack over his face. And I said, oh, my gosh, was was he in the sack? They said, yeah, he was. It was really cool. So I've pulled that piece off his face. And spiritually for myself, that that having that on the face and being born on call is really amazing. Firstly, it's one in 80,000 births in Australia that are born on call. But then also just having that piece over the face that signifies having the second sight or mediumship abilities. So I'm like, oh, cool. This is fun. <laughs> Uh, he was born, I cut the cord and then they started screaming, Oh, hemorrhage, you're bleeding, you're bleeding and racing around everywhere. So my husband hears the word hemorrhage and doesn't realize that again, that is something that does happen in birth and there are different levels of it. And he just sees everyone run in and start pushing on my stomach and they just chucked him a baby. He thought I was, he literally thought I was dying. So he's gone from, Oh crap, we're having a stillbirth. Oh no, we're not. Oh crap. I'm losing my wife. So he went through an emotional roller coaster seeing all that. And for him, it was extremely traumatic. For me, it was less so, although I did go and seek birth counseling because I, I did grieve for the home birth I didn't get. Mm-hmm. And the birth counseling was phenomenal. And I didn't get any postnatal depression or anxiety after this birth. Like there were some times where I felt sad or upset and felt that loss, but I didn't have depression or anxiety. So I've, felt so much better. And I had my midwives come and see me for the next six weeks at my house. You know, that, that helped. I could debrief. We could talk about it, you know, what went wrong, what they think, what to do next time, that sort of thing. So that really, really helped. So I know that wasn't super brief, but there's my two births. (laughs) Hey, that's fine. There's a lot to it as well. And it's important as to, for the baseline of the story. Um, So we were talking about your experience with Ray Mm -hmm. um, you, so you were saying you had postnatal depression, postnatal anxiety, a relapse in um, an eating disorder, possible OCD, possible PTSD from parenting more so than the birth. So, yeah. um, so how did it have? How did you realise, or how the, how did the hospitalisation come about? Like, you know, how how old was Ray when that when that happened? So I wasn't hospitalised until she was eight months. And the first three months after birth were pretty good. Like I actually don't have any complaints about that part. Breastfeeding was tough. I had to feed with uh, a nipple shield because it was so painful. And again, I've learned a lot of things with that birth that have helped with this one. So um, we now know that Toby, when he was born, I had similar issues but worse uh, with breastfeeding and we found out he had a tongue tie and that got released and that helped. But now we found out that Ray has one as well. So that was possibly at the time what was contributing to the latch issues. I just couldn't get her to latch properly. And oh. my nipples were in an, a world of pain. So I would feed with a, a nipple shield and then I have quite large boobs, especially when I'm breastfeeding. So they went up to a H. So I couldn't actually see my nipples. They were quite low. So I had to yeah. roll up a towel, shove it under my boob to lift it up so it wouldn't suffocate her. And it was just really awkward. And it, my back, I didn't even mention my back, the post the pelvic girdle pain 
is supposed to resolve um, when you have your baby. But for 7% of people, it stays around until you finish breastfeeding. And I was part of that 7%. So I was still in pain. I was, I still couldn't really walk. And that was shocking and surprising. And I was like, what? It's supposed to end. The birth was supposed to end. So I'm healing a second degree tear, still have pelvic girdle pain. Uh, lifting her was really hard. I did slip a disc at the end of that pregnancy as well. So I had that going on also. And it was just a world of like bodily pain that I was going through, but I was dealing mentally all right at that point. Like, okay, I can deal with these late nights because, you know, I partied a lot as a kid and that was probably worse than this. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I've dealt with that. That's fine. But at three months, just before she hit three months, I started to get very, very anxious. And this was due to knowing that my husband was going off to do what's called officer training school and he'd be away for four months. And so every time anything happened with Ray where a poop explosion that I had to clean up was suddenly my brain rewired into, holy crap, after next week, I have to deal with all of this on my own. I have to clean the car seat on my own. I have to do this on my own. Oh my gosh, how am I going to deal with that? And so Mm -hmm. I started already looking into the future, which anxiety I find is very future-based. It's what ifs, whereas depression is sort of past-based, like I should have done this, right? So I started already going into that like panic mode a little bit. And then next thing you know, one day she just refused, like full-on breast refusal, would not feed, but she was screaming and screaming. And the whole time, that first three months, she was a pretty, she was all right. She was a pretty colicky baby, but she was all right. But she just went into full screaming for like 12 hours, would not feed. I'm freaking out, messaging my mother's group, like what's going on? She will not go near me. I can't even put her head near me. I tried expressing milk and she would drink it from the bottle, but she wouldn't drink it from me. And when I expressed, it was like 20 mils in half an hour. Like it was mm-hmm. hard. So one of the mother's group ladies, thankfully at 4am, drove up with some formula for me to try. So I put her on formula and cried and cried and cried that I couldn't breastfeed my child. Saw a lactation consultant the next day, uh, saw my GP, went back to the lactation consultant. Like I tried everything and they all just said, it's supply, your your milk's gone. Like it's dried up. And I tried pumping, tried to bring it back. I was drinking, eating all the things and it just disappeared. I think that was the beginning of the depression part because you know, I couldn't feed my baby. My body wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. I couldn't go into labor naturally. I had to be induced. Those were the sorts of thoughts that started to come in. And then once we put her on formula and I didn't put two and two together straight away, she stopped sleeping. And this of course coincided with my husband leaving, not, mm-hmm. not leaving me, going away. And he was going to be living out in regional Victoria. And it was basically no contact as well. Like he could call every now and then, um, but not like coming back for a visit, at least not for a few months. So it was, it was nothing. And I didn't have any support. Like I had my mother's group, but they also all had their own babies and things. And I had my family, but they weren't really coming out to check on me. And I do have a tendency of, I'm fine. Don't worry. I got this, you know? So I probably made it a little bit harder. I didn't know how to ask for help. I just presumed people would know I'd need it and come and give it to me, right? And then got resentful when they didn't. So yeah. I see that now. But hindsight is twenty twenty, of course. So husband's gone away and she stopped sleeping. And when I say she stopped sleeping, I put it down to, oh, it must be the four-month sleep progression coming early. But she was not sleeping. Like she would wake every 20 minutes to every 45 minutes. 45 minutes was the absolute longest she would sleep, hands yeah. down. Uh, and I kept sort of saying, oh, she's not sleeping. And I told a few people, I ended up getting a, a pediatrician referral. So I want to see this like very well, like well-renowned pediatrician. 
And I mentioned, do you think this could do something with the formula is maybe she can't do dairy. I couldn't eat dairy when I was pregnant. Maybe that's why. And he said, nope, nope, nope. You've got her on the best formula. Do not change it. Does them more harm to change their formula. Keep her on that one. Yeah. And I was like, okay, all right. And you just, I didn't listen to my intuition. I should have known better, but I didn't listen to my intuition. And so when we got to, I reckon six months, when she was six months old, so I'd been literally sleep deprived. I waking every 20, 30 minutes, it got to the point where I was like, why do I bother going to sleep? She's just going to wake me up. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. would, I had a lot of intrusive thoughts. Like imagine if I threw my baby out the window, imagine if I dropped this knife on her, imagine if this happened. And it was like, I don't want those things to happen. It was petrifying, but those yeah. were the intrusive thoughts that were coming in. And I started to just relapse into an eating disorder that I'd had when I was a teenager. So I think that was my method of controlling things like, okay, I can't control her sleep. I can't control anything else, but I can control what I'm eating. And I started tracking and this was where people started to notice. So I would be going for a walk with my mother's group and we had this beautiful, lovely trail along um, in Warburton, the Warburton Rail Trail. It was beautiful. We'd be walking and I'd say, can someone just check, is she, is she sleeping? I can't say, is she sleeping? And they'd look under and go, oh, yeah, she's asleep. I'm like, great. And I'd start a timer. And then they go, oh, actually, she might not be. I was like, wait. And I'd stop the timer and go, I need to know, is she asleep yet or not? Like it was very important to me to have to the second how long she'd been sleeping. So mm-hmm. I started tracking that. I started tracking exactly how many meals she was drinking and how long it took and all of that. Uh, it was this weird thing where I wanted to have all these records it was almost like I needed to show someone how bad it was like look how yep. much sleep she, how much she's waking up overnight look I have proof you know of course no one asked and no one wanted to see but that was weird and I had one of the the girls in mother's group she's also a midwife and she said you, you know it's not it's maybe not a good thing to be tracking so much like this are you okay I'm fine I'm fine like I just I just need to know and it started to sort of go downhill. Obviously, I was, I was losing quite a bit of weight at this point as well. And no one really knew what was happening with me, but it was just spiraling. It was really spiraling. And I hadn't even recognized myself. I knew that I was engaging in um, disordered eating behaviors and I knew that was wrong. But anyone who's had an eating disorder knows that the very secretive nature of it where you do not want anyone to know because that means you'll lose control and they'll force you to eat and that means that you won't be able to engage in those disordered behaviors anymore and they'll be watching you so it's it's this horrible mixture of I know something's not right but I do not want to get better Mm -hmm. right and that also I find with depression as well often you don't want to get better it's this weird thing you would think everyone wants to be happy again and wants to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but sometimes you don't. Sometimes you just get sucked down into that hole and want to stay there. And that's kind of how it felt. And then Ben came home from for a weekend and I think we had to go to a, a party or something like that, right? And firstly, he saw me and was like, where is my wife? What is this shell of a person that I'm looking at? And like, I think I'd, from when I had had Ray earlier in the year in March um, to when she was about six months old, I think I dropped about 35 kilos and this was not just like baby weight. So he was like, where are you? My clothes were falling off me. I looked, even looking back at photos now, it's just like horrible. It's horrible to look at gaunt, pale. I just look sick. I look really sick. And 
we went to this party, I think it was an engagement party, whatever it was. And I started to like have a panic attack when I was there, like full-blown anxiety attack. And I couldn't like snap out of it basically. And he, he witnessed this and this was the first time he'd seen it. And he was like, you, you are not okay. We sort of went in the car and I remember having almost like a bit of a breakdown, like, no, I'm not okay. This is what's happening. And I think I might've mentioned that I'm not eating enough. And that was so incredibly difficult to say. And he's like, all right, we need to get you some help. So we went to the doctors and and I basically just said, I'm not feeling myself. They did the little postnatal depression checklist. And of course it came up saying postnatal depression. Uh, and then she said, all right, well, we need to get you some, some help. I'd called at this point, I'd called the defense hotline as well. Like Ben had sort of, cause he was, he's only home for a day. So he's messaging me saying, can you call the defense hotline for families and, and chat to them? Can they do anything? So they ended up sending out one of their chaplains from the base that's three hours away to come and visit me with his wife and have a chat. And he would call me weekly to check in on me. Like it was actually really lovely knowing there was a little bit of support there on base. Uh, mm. I called Beyond Blue. They were really helpful. I ended up calling the Butterfly Foundation. So I did utilize a lot of those help techniques, but it was still spiraling. It was still really bad. I yeah. started seeing a, a psychologist that was spe- that specialized in eating disorders. And I started seeing a, a nutritionist and a psychiatrist and someone else. I feel like there was um, or just my normal GP and I would have mm-hmm. to see these people weekly. So that's four appointments with a baby, seeing them weekly. Uh, and at this whole time we're also struggling with she's still not sleeping. And my GP just ended up saying, maybe it is the formula, trust your intuition, take her off, put her on something else. So I put her onto a, a soy formula and she started sleeping for two hours in a block. And I was like, oh my God, this whole time she's had tummy pain. She's had a day, de- like we ended up she found out she had a dairy allergy and it was causing her immense tummy issues. And she'd had like runny green frothy poos this whole time. And I just thought it was normal. I had nothing to compare it to. So then the guilt that washed over me with that was horrible. Um, But she'd also then got into this habit of just not being able to sleep longer. She didn't know how she didn't, wasn't able to. So we uh, tried to get into sleep school and they actually said, you're too sick. We can't take you. Like me as the mother was too sick. They can't be there for me to then help me with my daughter. You need to get professional proper help first. And I'm like, well, I I am, I'm seeing a psychologist, but it wasn't quite enough. So at this point I'd also engaged the, uh, what are they called? Uh, The maternal health nurse, but it was a higher up enhanced maternal health nurse. Mm-hmm. So they had, they were like the next level up for if you're really struggling and they would come to my house. So I wouldn't have to go to see them. They were really, really good. And they got me into like an art therapy program with some other mums going through postnatal. And then everyone just sort of witnessed that it was just still getting worse and worse and said, I think we need to put you into hospital. So I went into the mother baby unit and it was a bit difficult because my eating disorder was still raging and they didn't know how to deal with that. They couldn't help treat that. Uh, yet the eating disorder unit couldn't take me because I wasn't able to take my baby. I had no one else to watch her and they couldn't deal with the postnatal stuff. So it was this horrible mishmash crossover of mental health illnesses and no one could treat them holistically as a whole. It was, we can help you with this one, but not that one. You'll have to mm. just deal with that. But for me, they were so enmeshed. They were all together. So it was really difficult and I didn't enjoy my experience with the mother baby unit at all. I don't actually think it helped me. I'm sure it does help other people. So this is not to say don't seek help. But for me, with my particular circumstances, it I felt like they weren't listening. I felt like they didn't care. And 
when my daughter would still wake up super frequently, they would just say, you know, instead of letting me sleep, which is honestly, I think I honestly needed some sleep. I just needed a bit of rest overnight, at least one night of sleep. And they would just sort of throw it back to me and say, we can't settle or you have to. And I'm like, I have the same capacities as you guys, maybe less. And she still wouldn't settle for me. So it was really, really difficult. I just felt like I went there for help and didn't really get help. I was just medicated. And the medication didn't really help either. So then came out of that with almost like this tick of approval that they give you, which meant we could then book in for sleep school. Sleep school, honestly, they should have sent me there way earlier. That is what helped so much because she actually started to sleep and they were just helping us with uh, techniques on settling that we didn't know. We had no idea. Um, It really, really helped. But by that point, she was a lot older. She was almost one. Mm-hmm. And I was still on a lot of medications. They, the psychiatrist that I was seeing, he said, you're on a lot higher than I would normally give to other people. It's like my body was in such a state of flight or uh, fight that the, what are they called? The ones that make you calmer, <laughs> the ones for anti-anxiety, I've lost that now. Uh, I was on such a high dose of Valium, of Valium. He said, most people can't handle that. And it still wasn't really calming me. I wasn't mm-hmm. sleepy. I wasn't anything. I was still very, very much at this peak level. But as soon as she started sleeping, Ben came back from his course. He ended up being able to take some time at an interim posting. So instead of being away again, he was able to work a desk job for a year so that he could be close. By that, I mean, he still had a two-hour commute to work and a two-hour commute home to the nearest Mm -hmm. base. But at least he was home every night and I knew I didn't have to do it alone. Obviously being in hospital, friends and family knew that something was up. So we started getting a lot more help from people coming over and, hey, I'll do the washing for you. Hey, I'll help out with this. Mother-in-law started staying over so she could do the night shift. So all of that started to help, calmed everything down a little bit and gradually I could sort of reduce that medication and started to feel a little bit normal again. And there was a lot of spiritual stuff in the background as well for me going on and some healing from childhood trauma and all of that that this birth and subsequent experience brought out and helped me to heal and get through. So the I then also had some dietary changes, which they didn't suggest. The dietitian was very against me making them, but I ended up going vegan, partly because I was already vegetarian and my daughter now has a dairy allergy. I don't want any dairy in the house. Yeah. I dropped the dairy and I actually felt so much better mentally. And I went, oh okay, this could could actually help. Maybe the food can heal me as well. So then when I went completely vegan, they just said, we don't recommend it. Usually it's worse for eating disorder patients. But for me personally, it really helped. And it's almost like I was attributing some guilt still with those animal products, which is why I went vegetarian in the first place. So it's like that was still there and compounding into the other guilt I felt with mum guilt and shame and all of that. So yeah. taking that away helped. And then by August the next year, so this was you know, a year and a bit after she was born, she was born in March the previous year, I was able to come off all of my medication and felt like a normal human being again and was, you know, not engaging in disordered eating behaviours and I wasn't having anxiety attacks and I wasn't crying myself to sleep at night. So it was a total, total difference. And at that point we moved states and we worried because we're not going to have the, the support that we have here and, you know, it's going to be a whole new area. But honestly, for me, perfect thing to push me out of my comfort zone a little bit. Uh, I made some excellent friends when we got to Perth and it was probably the best thing for me. And since then, it's sort of been up and up and up and I haven't had to deal with those issues. But then when I had Toby, I, I made sure that I had birth counselling and all of that to to preemptively stop any of that occurring again. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you had to have to be on top of it. Um, and it's it's so much about being self-aware and the experience that you had last time. And it can't – I don't understand how how P&D is so – like they say you've got a high chance of it reoccurring with a second baby, but I'm thinking, you know, you, you're more aware of it, of how you're feeling and mm-hmm. you know what's sort of normal and what's not to an extent compared to not having a clue whatsoever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know what why why that's the case, but well, they they even say it with because I I diagnosed with um, major depressive disorder, uh, double depressive, and I think dysthymic disorder, and anxiety when I was a teen, and eating mm. disorder, all of that, right? Um, but they said from then on when I got pregnant, like, oh, your um, they had like an amber alert on my documentation because I'd had previous mental health issues, and it was like, oh, your amber alert because postnatal. I had a baby, no one ever cared or checked in or anything. It's like, why put that Amber Alert there? Because, yeah. you know, but I think the the fact that I was on bed rest for so long and isolated and then isolated again with no support, like, at all, that compounded. The fact that I was induced, I did not know when they induced me that uh, postnatal depression is a side effect of being induced. Mm. Like, that was surprising to me. I didn't know that stopping breastfeeding increased my chances of postnatal there is a lot of things there that increase those chances that I weren't aware of. Yeah. This time around, I didn't want to get induced for that reason. That was part of my reasoning for it. Uh, I tried to do everything that I could to make the experience where I was safer, felt more comfortable, more in control. Uh, wasn't having things done to me. I understood I could say no, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. I had choice in the matter and that really helped. And yep. so then when, Ben didn't really have choice in what was happening and viewed that whole traumatic experience. He ended up uh, with some depression afterwards, which we're terming postnatal depression. It wasn't diagnosed as postnatal because I think as well because he's a man, it's not expected. And the, mm. the counsel that he saw uh, didn't term it that. Yeah. But he, he definitely needed some help. He wasn't himself. He had to, again, come off work for a little bit because he wasn't coping. So I think that for him was a total we just had totally different experiences both times yeah. so it's really interesting and he's never had mental health issues before it was quite surprising and surprising for him and I remember him saying like he was lying on the couch and he's like I just feel so tired all the time is this what you felt like I said yeah you're physically tired it's not just in the head when yeah. people say you know I'm depressed it's not just about how you're feeling and thinking and your emotions it's physical it affects you physically you know the depression means you all you want to do is lie around and sleep all day, literally. But then yeah. the anxiety means you can't. You just, if you've got both, all you want to do, like you can't sleep. Your brain is racing a million miles an hour. So it was this horrible mishmash of both of them. And even yeah. when, when I was saying before, there's uh, some OCD and, and post traumatic stress disorder, because I had a, I'm going to say an episode where I couldn't settle Ray, just couldn't settle her. And it, almost like flew me back to all those sleepless nights of not being able to settle her when she'd just wake super, super frequently. And I was at a friend's house at this time and they, I just basically disappeared and they couldn't find me. And I was sitting in a ball, like crying, rocking back and forth. And I have no idea how long I was there for. And all sound of them talking felt like it was coming through water, like deep underwater. And I'd never experienced that sort of scenario before. And when discussing that with my psychiatrist and my psychologist that I was seeing at that time, they said that's like a postnatal, uh, post-traumatic stress 
episode basically. It's like when you're thrown back to a war zone. I'm like, I haven't been to war. I haven't had this horrible traumatic thing. And they said, you don't have to. Trauma is what you perceive as trauma and not being able to settle your baby and feeling like you failed her. That's traumatic for you. And you're repeating that night after night. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Did you have any, like, um, anything that triggered you? Do you think it was the sleep deprivation that sort of triggered, um, I suppose, a down you know, downhill spiral or, you know. I think the combination of of sleep deprivation mixed with my husband having to leave was probably the main ones. And then the the breastfeeding, all of that's all at once, all started at the same time. So breastfeeding, stopping, sleep suddenly stopping. And because before that she'd slept relatively normal for a three-month-old, right? Mm -hmm. Up until then it was, it was bearable. And then just suddenly it became impossible. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting. There's mm. just so going on and you've got everything all coming together and it just creates a big explosion. <laughs> it really yeah. does it of things. Um, and this, you know, our lives are so chaotic nowadays. They're not like they used to be. And there's, you know, we don't have villages raising our families. It's, every, mm-hmm. you know, work. We work full time a lot of the time or we're doing, you know, random hours and um, and then we're also doing the same thing and having the same expectations on ourselves to build a family and a house and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, yeah it's definitely. I think as well, like it didn't help having a quarter acre property that like was mature fruit trees and a newborn <laughs> and having to mow the lawn, which is really hard because I can't hear her crying if I'm mowing and she wakes so often, like can't mow with her attached to me because that doesn't feel safe. So there was just like that I have to upkeep this property as well so extra layer of stress we didn't really have heating in there so I had to light a fire every day and go and try and get chopped firewood so there was a lot of things there that were compiling and adding on to that stress and just to go into a little bit of a spiritual thing as well with my astrology chart and anyone out there that's not into astrology may not understand but there's something called your sun sign, which is what everyone knows as their star sign. That is, you know, the the position in the zodiac of the sun at the time of your birth, right? And that it's there for about a month. That's why everyone's like, I'm a Pisces or I'm a Virgo or I'm a this. The moon does the same thing, but the moon moves a lot faster through the zodiac. It goes, you know, every 28, 29 days. So everyone has a sun sign and a moon sign and all the other planets as well. But your moon sign is your emotions, okay? That is your how you are emotionally stable or validated, right? Emotionally fulfilled. For me in my chart, my moon sign uh, is Scorpio, which is pretty intense emotionally, but it's also uh, in my 10th house, which means it's my house of career. So if I don't have a career, like if I'm not working towards my higher calling or anything like that, I don't feel emotionally fulfilled. And that played a massive part for me with Aurelia because obviously I had to stop work at 28 weeks and I was on my way to starting my own building company. It was a totally different career role for me. And then when Ben got into the Air Force, it was like, well, we're going to be thrown around the country. I can't have a building company. There's different regulations in every state. There is different licenses in every state. It's basically your career over mine, which a lot of women have to then do, like your husband's career over your own because you're the one having the babies. And it was like, I've done 10 years of this. This is what I've built up to. And now it's all down the drain. So that was horrible to start off with. And that's sort of how the pregnancy started. And then going through all of that with postnatal and thankfully having a spiritual practice really, I think, influenced me coming back to myself as well. 
And then knowing that I had my ha- my moon in my 10th house, I was like, you know what, maybe I need work. So I made sure to get back to work as soon as possible, which probably helped with recovery as well. So was back at work and I was like, okay, I feel like I'm doing something, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do. It was kind of sales in building and wasn't really right. And at the same time, I do all my own tarot and witchy stuff at home. And I thought, you know what, maybe I can make this a business. And so I did, I launched my business and I'll tell you what, that has helped a million times. And I worked all the way up. I was in labor, sending out my my monthly newsletter to all of my clients. <laughs> and my husband's taking photos going, you're insane. And I'm like, hold on. Oh, no, I'm good. I'll just finish this email. Like, I'm really happy to do that. I'm, I yeah. was not looking forward to time off. I had my baby. And I reckon a couple of days after having Toby, I was back on the computer going, oh, maybe I should open my shop. And he's like, no, have a break. And I'm like, oh, but I think it's actually going to really help. Just give me half an hour and I'll do an astrology report and then you know, I'll feel like me. I'll feel like an individual human being again. So I didn't really stop. And I think personally for me, that was the best thing I can do. And now when I'm weaving that into astrology reports for people or if I'm doing a guidance call with them and we look at their moon sign, if they have anything in that 10th house, I'm like, dude, don't don't take maternity leave. Like that's not going to be good for you. <laughs> but if they have something like their moon in their fourth house, being at home and being with the kids, that's going to be perfect for them. They're going to love not having to work. If they go back to work too soon, that could impact their emotional sense of stability. So there's so many different, you know, we all are made up so beautifully and uniquely, but it's really interesting to see that spiritual aspect of it as well and how it all plays out. Yeah, it is interesting. I'm not much, I haven't, you know, looked much into that, but I do know my sister, she will enjoy listening to this one. She's very that as well um so I'll let her know and I'll also link your um information and business and everything um so everybody can go and have a look if that's um if they're they're interested in that yeah come and join me it's good fun over there I do lots of really funny reels (laughs) (laughs) nice how do you how do you feel now do you feel recovered do you feel like you're still um in your journey I feel recovered Absolutely. And I have felt that for at least a year and a half. And the second pregnancy being so good. And even though I had a little bit of uh, hyperemus gravidarum at the start, I don't even like bring that into the story because it didn't even really, like it was, it affected me physically. Mentally the whole time I just said, I just know this pregnancy is better. I just know this is going to be better. I was in such a, almost like a high the whole way through. Like, yes, I can't eat anything. Uh, I can't even keep down water, but (laughs) great. (laughs) So it was wildly different, whereas before it was like everything was happening to me, this became more of like happening with me and it's all part of it. And, you know, I I don't know. I don't know. It was just wildly different journeys. And I think I had to go through the first one. I don't regret anything because it taught me so much and it brought me to where I was. It forced me to heal a lot of childhood stuff and teenage stuff that I hadn't healed before. And even this time around, same deal. Whereas I've still learned something. I've still got stuff that I've gone through and healed. And I did uh, this birth counseling with Fiona Rogenson, who is phenomenal. She's over in Perth and we just did it via Zoom. And I could just message her and be like, hey, I just, you know, feeling a little bit funky about this one aspect of my birth. Uh, Can we talk about it? And she'd set me up and we'd have a chat. And it just felt so good having someone that could listen. And, you know, she's in the birth industry as well. So she knows she gets it. And she actually specializes in birth trauma and postnatal depression in dads. So great resource for anyone else who's worried about their partners. Um, And, you know, not all just, not all dads as well 
but anyone, even if you're in a same-sex relationship, your partner who didn't give birth can still be traumatised. It's just that support person there uh, on your partner. So definitely look her up. She's amazing. Yeah, Uh, as well. Yeah. Sure. So, so I think now I'm feeling a lot better and I've just been able to, to manage any of those fears and guilt and things that come up with all of the coping mechanisms that I learned with all of that therapy. Yeah. Yeah. You've done, done a lot of work on yourself. Um, Absolutely. To get and that's what mm-hmm. happened really. Yeah. And I feel um, a more authentic version of myself now as well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And you, there's a saying about when you become um, you, like when you have a baby, you, you get reborn I suppose as a new person as a mum rather than what you were before and it's so true yeah you're not just birthing a baby you're birthing yourself yourself yeah because you've everything changes it's like you've stepped into this whole new universe you know Mm -hmm. it's just over this threshold and everything's different from the second that you step into that that new role so it looks it birth is a liminal place it is neither Mm -hmm. here nor there it's birth and death. It's that portal. And those yeah. are the magic places. That's where the magic happens. That's right. That's right. Um, do you have any advice for mums who are struggling with what you've, what you've been through or even um, whose partners might be struggling? I think being okay with communicating, which is so much easier to say than to do, mm. because to say to someone, I'm not okay, is hard. That's so, so, so hard. But once you say it, if like, honestly, it takes so much off your shoulders, even if it's too hard to say it, put it in a text message, write it down, just get it out of you somewhere. And even if you don't say it yet to the person, right, you can write it into an email and put that in your drafts and just leave it there. Yeah, uh, I'm a big proponent of just getting it out of your body, getting those things that you want to say, even if you want to rage at someone, like, I'm so mad at you for not supporting me. I'm so mad at you for not realizing I need help. Why are you not here? Put that in an email right? Or put it in, right into a letter in a journal entry. Uh, you know, I was, I had a lot of anger there at my mom for just being at my birth, my previous, the last birth. And I wrote that in a little letter in my journal. I'm never going to give it to her. I love my mom and she was doing what I'd asked her to do. So, you know, it, I don't think she needs to see that, but it helped me. It really helped me just get it out. Otherwise you're holding onto that energy in your body and it can just sort of fester which is not good so get it out of you and that will help and then if you can ask for help try to do so I did like I utilized those helplines everyone tells you to utilize it was scary Mm -hmm. I cried the second they answered it was you know even breastfeeding this time around I remember calling the um, ABA and you know they said oh hi you know how can we help you and I went (laughs) I'm just having problems like it just and they're so used to that like it's okay it's okay you're allowed that and once that emotional rush comes out you're like oh all right, now I can talk, you know, now yeah. I'm, I'm all right. So yeah, talking. Yeah. And also um, acceptance. Like I still, I still believe that you can't really do any of that stuff until you accept it within yourself. Um, mm. And you know, like for me, that took seven months to get to that point. So everybody's different, but at some point you will get there. Nobody can really force you into that step. You have to really, um, get there yourself and accept before you can do anything else and move forward so yeah definitely yeah. and similar to me like I I knew something was wrong I knew I was doing things I shouldn't be doing yeah. but I didn't want to admit it to myself yeah no but you don't want to know so yeah. you make up excuses for yourself you're your biggest enemy in that regard yeah 
try and say, I'm fine, I'm fine, this is normal. Yeah. But, yeah, and it can be hard to remember what normal feels like sometimes. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and you've got other people as well saying, oh, yeah, I went through that, I felt that. But, um, you know, I guess it doesn't it doesn't take away how you're feeling as well, even, even if people have been through the same things. Um, it, it, you're in an individual and you've got to think about how you're feeling. So, yeah. And pay attention to your body as well. Like I would have people say, oh, I'm so tired, and I would get the deepest rage response mm-hmm. in my right? How dare you say you're tired? And to me, <laughs> when you know what I'm going through, how dare you? But I would never communicate that, right? So yeah, I was struggling yeah. and holding on to that anger, right? And I should have paid attention. That's not a normal response. If someone's t- going, oh, I'm tired, you're like, oh, yeah, me too. Right. That's what I do now. Or like, oh, it sucks. Being tired's the worst. Even if they've not had to wake up 10 times and you have, even if they've only been woken up once or just got a late night, like you're allowed, they're allowed to feel tired. Like you're allowed to feel tired. But if you notice that you're having those reactions, that's a sign. That's your body trying to tell you something like, Hey, we're reacting to something. Why? Let's look into that. So your body is giving you clues at all, at all times. And that's part of being self-aware, which can be hard when you're in the thick of it as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, well, thank you so much for today. I think everything that you've shared with me is such in, so insightful. Um, and just even digging just a little bit deeper into things. And um, I think it's going to help women to understand how they're feeling as well, um, whether it be normal or not, but just have an explanation as to why they're feeling particular ways. So thank you for coming on and sharing. Really appreciate it. You are so very welcome. I really hope it helps someone out there and or at least makes people feel like they're not alone because I think especially the eating disorder thing, no one really talks about that and that's part of having an eating disorder. You don't want to talk about it and it's taken me years to even tell people that I've had one. So uh, that part, if anyone's going through that, like that's, you know, you're not alone. You are not alone. So hopefully that helps. Yeah, definitely. you enjoyed this episode a huge thank you to hannah for reaching out to have a chat with me so far everyone's story has been completely different in so many ways and it is so important to keep sharing these and normalize perinatal mental health issues if you want to see photos of hannah's birth and her little family head to my instagram page or my website to check them out as well as photos from every episode that i have done so far i also want to make a note that even though this podcast is called Let's Talk PND, I am interested in hearing from anyone who has experienced any sort of perinatal mental health issues that are willing to share and um, get their story out there. So thanks again for tuning in and I look forward to bringing you another episode very soon.